Wonderful. Well, so great to be here with Matthew Pinzer, the Chief Marketing Officer of Jackson Health Systems. Matthew, welcome to our CMO series. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to spend some time with you. Likewise, likewise. And I'm disappointed that we didn't catch you in scrubs today, but you know, the polo, I think it does perfectly as well. Oh, thanks. Yeah, uh, this is uh, National Nurses Week. So I spent the morning shadowing one of our medical surgical nurses at one of our hospitals. Uh, Then I ran out for a lunch meeting and then I decided to spend time with you from my home office. So I was able to switch out of my scrubs into a polo real quick. That's amazing. And what was uh, what was a memorable moment from um, from being a part of Nurses Week today? Um, honestly, any time that we get to be with the frontline staff, especially with the nurses and with the techs and the therapists um, interacting with our patients, it's really, really, really powerful. And this was the first week where we had allowed patients to have visitation again. Uh, you know, COVID is still really a, a, a major concern here in South Florida. So it was only on Wednesday that we started allowing patients to have visitors in for two hours in the morning and two hours in the afternoon. Um, So seeing some of these patients get to have their family member with them for a little while, man, after such a long, hard 14 months, uh, we take any little glimmer of joy that we can get. Listen, that must be it must be so incredible and to be there for it. Um, so, Matthew, you're sitting atop one of the nation's largest public healthcare systems as chief marketing officer. What has that experience been like for you in the last year? Um, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, that journey for you. We serve Miami-Dade County. So we serve, a, you know, a very large, diverse urban community. Uh, we've got more than 13,000 employees um, about to open our seventh hospital on our fourth different campus. Um, so it's a huge organization in a community that, as I said before, was really hit very hard by COVID. Um, so balancing all of the communications needs that we've had as a public academic health system in the middle of that, um, while also supporting uh, you know, what our frontline caregivers need and what our patients need during this pandemic has been unlike anything I've ever seen in my 10 years in healthcare or really in any other setting that I've been in. Um, I was a newspaper reporter for a long time before this, and I worked in local politics for a while. uh, And I think pretty much everyone involved uh, believes and certainly hopes that this is a once in a lifetime experience. One of the things you said when we were chatting earlier um, was that when you approach something as great as the crisis that our nation is, you know, has gone through and is still going through, um, that you need to be humble about your approach to a crisis. Can you tell me a little bit more about um, how you how you sort of got uh, got moving, how you mobilized, and how you really approached your uh, you know your your process as a marketer? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And this is something that we find with really any communication strategy here in South Florida. Um, And I think one of the things we've all learned is that for a public health crisis, you can't solve that entirely with activity at a leadership level, right? This gets better when people across our communities take certain kinds of action, right? Whether that's wearing a mask and social distancing, now whether it's going out and getting vaccinated as soon as you can when it's your turn. Uh, And we also know that in diverse communities like South Florida, there isn't just one message, there isn't just one spokesperson, there isn't just one voice that's going to reach everyone. And the times when organizations like ours get into trouble is when we start to think we know all of the answers and we start to think we know what's best for everyone. 
Um, you know, you explained this as a humble approach, and I like to think that's what we did. Um, and I'll give a, a very tangible example of that. Uh, Jackson Health System was one of the first and one of the largest providers of public vaccination. Um, and we knew with uh, a community where, uh, you know, 75% of people more or less identify as something other than white, that a lot of strategies that are considered best practices in the Western world, right, are defined that way as best practices for certain groups of people. Uh, and th those don't always take into account how to reach different traditionally underserved, traditionally marginalized communities. So that's where I think this concept of a humble approach came from. We went to the people who we have authentic organic relationships in this community from all different walks of life. We went to the black churches. We went to the mosques and the synagogues. We went to the nonprofit groups that serve all kinds of different marginalized groups, whether it's the homeless, whether it's agricultural workers, uh, whether it is seniors. Uh, and we said, what do we need to do with you to create opportunity for your folks to get the public health messaging that they need and hopefully to get that shot in the arm as soon as they can? And it was different with every group. So very early on, uh, as early as uh, January, February, we were holding Zoom town hall meetings with nurses and with doctors because one of the things that the broader research found very early on is that it's great when political leaders talk about this. It's great when athletes and movie stars talk about this. But for especially the people who are on the fence about what their behavior should be, the messenger that's going to change things for them is going to be a nurse, a doctor, or someone who's close to them in their life, a neighbor, a relative, a religious leader. Um, so we wanted to create opportunities for these influencers in relatively small groups, 30, 50, 60 at a time, to be able to hear the facts directly from our doctors and nurses and be in a contextual setting where they can ask any question they want without feeling embarrassed that somebody was going to make them feel stupid, without feeling like it was an inappropriate or wrong question. We had ways for people to ask questions anonymously, even though it was still live, um, to test out rumors that they had heard. And we found that when they had that opportunity, not only were we learning the best way to get the message out, we also were gaining advocates in the community, the cheerleaders, and we were making sure that people understood that once we get past this pandemic, that this brand, this Jackson Health System is here for them, cares about them, respects them and where they're coming from. So we also understand that this is going to pay dividends for our success for many, many years to come. Well, and you mentioned, you know, you you had sort of a multifaceted approach, right? It was very grassroots, but you were you were shooting highly produced videos, not just in English, but also in Spanish and Haitian Creole. Um, but you also mentioned that you were doing some on the ground content creation at vaccination spots. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, was that tough to push through, like, organisationally? Because I imagine there's all sorts of clearance and other things. Like, how did you navigate that and how did you know that that was the right thing to do? We are really fortunate at Jackson uh, that the core of our executive leadership team has been together for 10 years now. So there's a huge amount of trust among one another. 
Uh, so when the, the geniuses on my team, who are all much smarter than I am, when they said one of the key things we have to do is we need to get into the vaccine centers and we need to take these real time 20 and 30 second videos of these folks saying, here's why I came today. We honestly didn't even have to get clearance through the system, right? We talked to the executives who were in charge of each of the vaccine sites. We said, here's the time we're going to be here. Here's how we're taking care of all the privacy concerns. Let us know if there's anything you need or want from us. And bang, we did it. So we would frequently take these videos in the morning and have them out on our social channels after lunch. Well, and that's, I mean, that's incredibly inspirational because if I, if I apply this to many of the marketers who might be listening to this who are going, gosh, you know, we're not getting vaccinations out. What we do is important, but um, it may or may not be saving lives, right? Um, but I think just hearing about having the bravery to act quickly and to be agile, even when you're navigating a tough environment like that, I think, I think there's a lot that could be broadly applicable um, to how you just mobilise the local community. Like a, a big theme that we talk about is, you know, how do you understand what's happening in culture so that you can go and be a part of that? Um, and I think this is just a, a great example of embracing your different communities. And, I mean, you were talking to me about just the diversity that you have in the Miami-Dade County and how different it is just almost block by block. Um, and how you sort of embrace that in a very holistic way. Well, and Tanya, I think one of the themes that you see throughout this conversation is you can't wait for the crisis, right? Everything that you're empowered to do, all those tools in your toolbox are honed during the regular day-to-day -day stuff. So if as a marketer, you are making decisions that are helping your organization as a whole, helping your individual business units and helping those other leaders within the organization accomplish their goals, that's how you earn the credibility to be able to move quickly and pivot into action when the mess really does hit the fan, right? So it's only because, for example, my media relations team has such a strong reputation of being zealous about protecting patient privacy because our hospital CEOs see them doing that day in and day out for years now. When we say, hey, we want to parachute into your vaccine center and we're going to will be responsible for the privacy issues, they know they don't have to give that a second thought. They know they don't have to back check that. It's one less thing on their plate. So yeah. that's the way that the day to day ways that marketing and communications interact with the rest of the organization becomes crucial in an exponential way. So it's almost like if I'm going to put that maybe in my own words, it's like proactively building reputational muscle so that when you have to flex it, it's not you're not doing it for the first time and you're not having to consensus build right at that point of crisis. That's absolutely right. And if you layer on top of that, having the kind of relationships with what we call our internal clients, right, our stakeholders in the hospitals and in the service lines, of being able to be creative, being able to be ambitious, being able to be out of the box in a way that does not put their reputation at risk, that does not put them in the crosshairs of any legal or regulatory challenges. So if you can have that proof of concept and show, look, we can pull off bigger things than you ever imagined. And all of those things that earlier in your career, you were told don't trust communication because they don't think about X, Y, and Z, and you're putting yourself at risk. If you can demonstrate that those concerns don't have to be front of mind for them, you have almost infinite runway 
to then take advantage of all of those different tools in the middle of a crisis. So you're right. We have these highly produced videos in multiple different languages speaking to people of multiple backgrounds. We have these quick hit social media videos uh, that were literally being shot on iPhones, uploaded, edited, and online within a few hours. We had these Zoom town hall meetings. Um, We built a speakers bureau so that the hundreds of community organizations that we work with over the course of a normal year, that we could reach out to them and say, hey, Chamber of Commerce, hey, church organization, hey, nonprofit group, next time you have a board meeting via Zoom, because we know you're getting your 50 board meeting members together for meetings, if you want to have a nurse come to your meeting and talk for five minutes about vaccination, we got you. You need somebody who speaks Spanish? We got you. You're a, you know, a women's professional organization and you want to have a Creole speaking woman who's a nurse at this particular campus? We've got you. We got because you back. Because we've built all of that up. Yeah. And that's also something that you could not have possibly tried to build on the fly for the first time at that point, right? Because that's when a crisis hits, everyone goes like this and they they don't want to, to be out there and to be open. We talked about um, how um, you approached agility in social media and actually a lot of what you did in social media was one of the things that first put you know you on my radar as someone that I wanted to reach out to how did you kind of coach or guide your teams to embrace social like what did that whole workflow looks look like because I know a lot of companies you know have really long-ranging plans and you would have had to throw all that out and just go like can you tell us a little bit about your approach there This is another place where I am blessed to have a team in place that is smarter, more dynamic, and more forward-thinking than I am. Um, So you're right. We do always have uh, at least mid-range plans for what we're going to be doing on all of our channels uh, to service our different campaigns and to amplify our general brand messaging. Um, But that's always had a strong component of daily engagement from the media relations team within our department. And they're the ones who are pivoting Every day, you know, they're jumping from one issue to another based on what the news of the day is. So I think that made it a lot easier for us to make some very quick decisions. Here's what we're going to shut down entirely. So there was a a phase early on in the pandemic where we pretty much shut down anything that looked like it was selling or marketing, and it just became information channels. Um, We're also really fortunate that our structure as being technically a government-owned health system, we're part of Miami-Dade County government, and therefore we are covered by Florida's public records laws, which are some of the most open uh, in the entire country. Um, That makes it very, very easy for me to be an advocate within our organization for transparency, because a lot of that stuff, if anybody ever asks for it, we have to produce it anyway. So instead of looking at that as an incoming rocket, right? Let's steer into that and let's use that as one of our brand differentiators. So from the very, very beginning, we were posting on Twitter at 4 p.m. every day how many COVID positive inpatients we had. So that was the first way before any, before the county or the state were reporting that, that was a really strong way for the press and the public to get a sense of the rate at which things were accelerating, when we were hitting peaks, when things were backing off, Um, We were also reporting on a daily basis the running total of how many COVID positive patients we had discharged because we wanted people to have a sense, uh, you know, of how many people were being directly impacted by this disease. And then from January until just last week, we were also daily reporting on social media how many people we had vaccinated in our community. 
Uh, now, look, there are places where social media is not a perfect solution. We made a decision back in December that when we started public vaccination in January, we were only going to take appointments online. We had looked at some peer health systems that had tried setting up phone banks, and all that happened was they crashed, and that led to not only frustration among the public, but to vaccine appointments not getting filled because there wasn't a way to fill that. So we were using social media to announce when more appointments were available on the website. We knew that that was going to put some communities and some demographics at a disadvantage. There was no way around that. So rather than trying to pretend that wasn't an issue, we solved for it. And what we said is five days a week, we're going to populate our vaccination appointments through this digital tool. Two days a week, we are going to reserve all of our vaccination appointments for these religious and nonprofit groups that we partnered with. So the way that ended up working was extremely manual. Um, We would talk to these churches every week. We would say, how many vaccine appointments can you find people to fill at our three different locations? And if a church said, I can fill 40, we would build in Microsoft Excel the simplest template you could imagine with 40 different time slots on it email it to somebody at the church. They would fill in somebody's name and birth date and email it back to us. And that's how people would get vaccinated. So these are the people who were never going to sign up for Twitter alerts and they weren't going to go onto our secure website to book themselves a slot. But if the pastor said, hey, Betty, you know, you're 77 years old and I know that you've had diabetes for a long time. I really think you need to be one of the first people in our community to get vaccinated. Betty says, no problem gets on the list, gets her appointment, not to mention her church who has their arms around her is going to know, does Betty drive? Is she going to be able to get herself there? Do we need to get somebody else to do that? Uh, You know, who is going to stay with her for a little bit afterwards? So you really do kind of live that African proverb of it takes a village to raise a child. Well, it takes a village to vaccinate a village as well. It's something that we've learned. Um, And by working with these great, great, great partners, all of whom right? We're taking on at least as much logistic responsibility as we were by finding all these people. Well, of the 172,000 people who got vaccinated at Jackson, 54,000 of them were vaccinated through this manual program. What does that mean as far as equity and inclusion? 10 days into our public vaccination, before we started this outreach program, uh, we saw that about 9% of our vaccine patients identified as Black. Our community is about 15 or 16 percent black. So our CEO came to me and said, the only job you have until vaccination is done is to make sure that that 9 percent gets up to 16 percent. Go do it. I'm proud to say that by the time we finished, 15.1 percent of our vaccine had gone to black patients. And we had very, very similar alignment uh, with Hispanic patients with our, our census data and our vaccination data. That doesn't happen by accident. And that doesn't happen by ticking the box and doing the things that are easy to do that make us feel like we've accomplished something. But if we're not measuring it, we don't know if we're there, right? I'm sure there are plenty of well-intentioned health systems all across the country who did the town hall meetings and they did the little videos and they did all that. And still the, the equity and the inclusion wasn't where they wanted it to be. Well, it was because you weren't taking advantage of those relationships, those people in the community who are there wanting to help raising their hand. But if you don't know who they are, 
if you don't engage with them and if you don't have that authentic level of trust with them already established, you're never going to get where you want to be. The time to deal with a crisis is not during the crisis. The time to deal with the crisis is before it happens. It's why you know, we happens. live right here in paradise, but also in the middle of hurricane country. Right. What everybody here knows is you don't start making your hurricane plan when the hurricane is three days out. You start making your hurricane plan on June 1st when hurricane season begins. Right. Where are your shutters? Do you have your food and water in the box in the garage? Do you have gasoline? All that kind of stuff. What we've been doing is we've spent our entire experience readying for the crisis so that we don't have to invent those relationships when we need them. Well, I think it also speaks to, you know, I think a, a very, very broad marketer challenge of like hard to reach audiences, right? And it would have been very easy for you to sort of go, well, listen, you know, we've lit up social media, we've made access to information readily available, we've set up shop in all these places. But I think sort of going beyond that and intersecting that audience where they are, kind of not taking no for an answer, which I love, right? Like I think there's just something wild and crazy and wonderful about handling almost a third of your vaccines through spreadsheet and community outreach. I mean, it's just, it's an epic, like you could just have a whole documentary about the logistics that must have been involved with a lot of the back and forth. Um, I think something that we've learned through this that's a little bit hard for us to even accept is that there's no such thing as a population that's hard to reach. There's a population that's hard for us to reach. Right. So what does that have to do with where we are, where we're sitting and what kind of work we've done in the past? If we know those people out there who we consider hard to reach, they have networks, they have friends and family and jobs and neighborhoods and places where they shop and places where they worship. So if we're considering them hard to reach, that probably says more about us than it does about them. About them and it's right. honestly given me a whole lot to think about and a whole lot to add to our strategic plan for post-pandemic life, because we shouldn't be thinking of any of our community members in that kind of context. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's, it's an incredible perspective, right? It's like they're not hard to reach. They're just hard to reach by me, right? They're being right. reached constantly, you know, just not by me, you know. Um, well, I mean, that's has anything in what you've learned throughout this pandemic sort of shifted your perception of what's possible or what you're going to do next? Because I know, you know, we're not through it. We're not even close to through it. But, you know, some part of you must be looking to the future and going, gosh, like I didn't even realise that were possible. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think it's definitely emphasized the fact that our health system, and I think this is true about a lot of big organizations, sometimes we're better at putting out fires than we are at building fireproof buildings. Um, so I told you, our, our team has been together for about 10 years now. And when we all first came into the health system, um, the, the system was financially and, and operationally in really, really bad shape. And it looked like it may potentially be closed or sold or privatized. Um, and one of the only things that had consistently been working well back then was really, really high quality academic medicine. We're a teaching hospital. Um, and we have one of the top trauma programs in the world. Uh, one of the only freestanding trauma hospitals. It's the only hospital where uh, the army trains its forward surgical teams. Um, international renown, and you can find entire countries where a significant share of the trauma surgeons in the entire country trained at Ryder. Uh, and I say that as background because our chief of trauma surgery, when we first started 10 years ago, if you would ask him about Jackson, here's what he would be fond of saying. If I need three simple things in this trauma center, 
and I have six months to get them done, the chances of all three of them happening in six months are virtually zero. But if I need 30 complicated things in the next 30 minutes in order to save a life, I can get it every single time. So I do think we let ourselves fall into the trap of being so good at putting out fires that we don't build the fireproof buildings, right? I was really lucky because I have this great team around me that I was able to pluck two or three people from my team. Um, And 90% of the time, I was able to tell them, I don't want you working on COVID. I don't want you working on vaccine. I don't want you working on any of that. I want to make sure you're looking six months, 12 months, 18 months down the road So that when we can resume elective surgery, which obviously we have long since done, when we can resume visitation, like I told you we did today, and when people in our community feel safe coming back into hospitals, I don't want us to be 18 months behind, right? We have to be ready to execute those strategies to rebuild that volume. We operate our health system on a tiny, tiny, tiny budget margin. So if we let ourselves entirely lose sight of the horizon, then when we pick up our heads and we come out of this, what we're going to be facing is a big gaping hole in our budget, which imperils our ability to serve our mission in Miami-Dade County. Uh, So I think that's left us in a position of remembering how important it is to strike that balance between being agile and nimble and handling what's right in front of you today and also making sure that you're making achievable smart plans for the next 6, 12, and 18 months and that you're showing the backbone to stick to those plans unless there's a good reason to deviate from them. Well, it ties into something that um, that I think you said earlier, which was you said, when I'm dumb, I surround myself with smart people. And when I'm feeling smart, I surround myself with smart people who disagree with me. Yeah, I stole that from somewhere, but I can't remember where. So I I love it. it, And I just stole it from you. (laughs) Well, I love that, you know, and, and I think you've also said failure is a core value on your team. So can you talk a little bit about your unique brand and how you approach your role and like what that looks like? So I think we've talked a lot about what you've done in, in the last, you know, in the last year or two, um, but I'd, I'd just love to know more about your, your specific approach. So I like to joke that there are about 13,100 employees at Jackson, and I'm the only one who will admit that I'm not an expert on marketing, right? I'm sure that marketers in large organizations, especially healthcare systems, are familiar with this feeling where Mm -hmm. every internal department that you have knows better than you do about how you should be advertising, (laughs) right? And it's because, look, none of us perform transplant surgery, right? None of us set fully catheters every day, but every single one of us is subject to advertising, So since we are all advertised to from time to time, then we think we know everything there is to know about it. Um, I'm very, very comfortable in the space of not knowing what I'm doing. Um, I also don't come from a healthcare background. I've been at Jackson for 10 years, but before that I was a newspaper reporter for 10 years and then I worked in Miami-Dade County government uh, for about three years. Um, So I really was able to come into this, I think, with the good and the bad, right? I had a totally fresh perspective. I don't think I'm, I'm overly tainted by the conventional wisdom in healthcare marketing. On the other hand, I have no idea what I'm talking about and it often shows. Um, and layer on top of that, as I mentioned, when we started 10 years ago, there really was no budget to spare. So even though I think my marketing budget today looks pretty lean compared to peer institutions and certainly compared to for-profit hospital corporations, it's definitely a much more comfortable budget than what we had 10 years ago. 
Back then, we couldn't afford to just go spend a million dollars on billboards or on a flight of TV commercials. So what we have always asked ourselves is, what can we do that is really unusual and is going to stand out because it's unusual? Let me put it a little bit of a different way. Um, there are 20-something hospitals in Miami-Dade County beyond the Jackson hospitals. Um, cardiology and cardiac surgery is something that there's a lot of competition over, always has been. And for years, we talked about whether we should be getting into marketing our heart program in an aggressive way. And what I always said was, with all that noise out there, the only two ways to market are to do the same thing that everybody else is doing, in which case you're just adding to the noise, or you have to do something that can be noticed above that noise. But you can't be noticed above that noise by just doing the same thing that everyone else is doing and trying to do more of it. So how can we do the things that are wild? You know, you repeated back to me the, the thing that I always say to job candidates right before we make an offer to them. Uh, in their last interview, I asked to meet with, uh, with any, any finalist, and I tell them failure is a core value on this team because if we're not failing from time to time, it means we're not being ambitious enough and it means we're not being unusual enough. And I try and create a safe space. I will tell them about failures that I've had at Jackson alone where I have wasted more money and wasted more time on failed projects than things they could ever imagine doing, right? And on one hand, I want to really make clear to them that it's an expectation that they are going to be adventurous intellectually. And I also want to let them know that this is a safe place to do those kinds of things, right? If I can experiment with something that costs a quarter million dollars and we end up with nothing to show for it, and the CEO and the CFO don't respond by firing me, they respond by saying, okay, well, you spent $250,000 to learn something. I hope you learned from it. That's the kind of environment that we want to foster in every part of our organization, but especially on the marketing team, where we have to stand out in such a crowded field. You, you use the word unusual, and I, I've never really heard that being, being used in the context of marketing. Can you tell me more about how you came to that? Because that is, I think, that is something that is a standout when, when it comes to not being a part of the clutter. Uh, desperation is good for inspiration. Um, so again, when you can't afford the billboards and the TV commercials, you find other things you've got to do. So I'll give you a few examples. Um, very early on, we were just trying to reestablish the brand. So it was, yes, it was about trying to bring patients into specific service lines, but we just needed to let people know that Jackson was a healthy going concern where you can feel good about anything, whether it's getting surgery or coming to the emergency room. So we hatched a truly half-baked idea of trying to break the Guinness World Record for the most number of people trained in CPR in the same day. And we partnered with the public school system. We partnered with the University of Miami. We partnered with the American Heart Association. We partnered with Red Cross. Um, and we opened dozens of training sites across Miami-Dade County on one single day. <laughs> and just made a huge show of it all. Did we break the world record? No, we didn't. Would we have gotten credit for it even if we did? No, of course not. Because it turns not. Out you have to pay Guinness a whole lot of money to show up and certify that you're breaking <laughs> the world record. that was not in your budget. <laughs> but what did we do? We had wall-to-wall -wall TV and, uh, and, and print coverage for days about this gimmick which was doing something positive in the community, right? Teaching right. people Teaching CPR people is a CPI, yeah. element of, of, of first response and of public health. Um, and because we had, 
you know, the, at the time, the president of the University of Miami was former cabinet secretary, Donna Shalala. Um, our superintendent of public schools down here is something of a celebrity himself. We had some actual celebrities involved. We had school kids. We had nonprofit leaders. We had business leaders. Um, we And we were sending a message through that. Jackson is concerned about health in this community. Jackson is serious about health in this community. And Jackson is a convener at a very high level. If we can bring together something like this, we're an organization that knows how to get things done. Um, Much, much, much more recent example. Um, For the last two years now, Jackson has been the largest organ transplant program in the United States. Um, That is something we're incredibly proud of. We do some incredibly complex surgeries here uh, in order to earn that distinction. And um, maybe about nine months ago, uh, one of the heads of the transplant program said, you know, at one of the other transplant hospitals, they made a really nice five or 10 minute nicely produced video about the staff and how great they are. And it really helped boost morale. Do you think we can do something like that? And the first thing I thought to myself was, well, no, <laughs> we have a lot of other stuff we're trying to do right now. And boosting your staff morale is not exactly priority number one, brother. Um, but when, you know, we never, we try to never say no, it was trying to find a way to get to yes. And so that again, was my I, thought I, bubble. Went to, uh, I went back to the team of people who's much smarter than me and we, we kicked around some ideas and we said, you know, what's happening in the world's largest transplant program that was able to stay, I shouldn't say the world's largest, the country's largest transplant program that's trying to stay the country's largest transplant program in the middle of a global pandemic. That's not just inspirational and motivating to their own staff. That should be inspirational and motivating to anyone. To the whole community, yeah. That's an interesting story. And we really do think of ourselves first as storytellers. Um, I think that's probably somewhat biased by the fact that I'm a a former reporter. My deputy is a former reporter. We have a bunch of of washed up journalists on our staff. Uh, But we said, this is just a great tale that people are going to want to hear. So we went back to the transplant leadership and we said, what if we filmed our own in-house documentary about transplanting through a pandemic? And what if we have our in-house videographer fly with your surgeons when they go out of town to harvest organs at another hospital uh, from a donor and follow that all the way back? And what if we talk to some patients who have been transplanted during the pandemic? And in fact, we were so fortunate that there was a patient who had been recently transplanted and unfortunately became very ill with COVID and was hospitalized post-transplant with COVID during the time of no visitation, couldn't see his family, but he wanted to go on camera to talk about the quality of the experience he had had at Jackson. Well, when we finished this project, we had this 20-minute documentary that was as good as anything you're going to see on PBS or on Netflix. So we said, okay, how do we leverage this even further? Okay, instead of just emailing it out to everyone, we're going to have a live Zoom webinar world premiere. And we invited referring physicians from all over the state and all over the country. We invited all our employees. We invited all of our former transplant patients. And we invited everyone who's sitting on the waiting list waiting to get a transplant. And we brought everyone on to this big Zoom webinar and we premiered the video. And man, the power of that, the power of the head of the transplant program being able to introduce it and talk about what went into making it. And then... One of the surprises, I told you we had our videographer follow these organs all the way into our operating room when they were transplanted into a patient, but you never see in the documentary the patient who receives it. Mm. Well, in this world premiere Zoom event, we had 
the five-year-old boy and his mother who had received the organs talking about what it was like to see all of this. There was not a dry eye. I'm a former reporter. I have no heart and no soul. And I was bawling like a child watching this mom talk about seeing these organs that are now the heart that's now beating in her son's chest. Um, Those are how we find the opportunities to do things that I, I just... I'm not aware of anyone else doing this kind of stuff. And you can see that video right now, www.miamitransplant.org. If you scroll all the way to the bottom of that page, um, you'll see transplanting through the pandemic there. That's amazing. I mean, how much do you think your background as a storyteller and as a writer has informed who you are today as a marketer? And a, a second part of that question is, do you view yourself as creativity-led, data-led, or something else in between? Oh, that's a great question. I think that stories are what people remember. Um, that was just earned experience in my time as a reporter. You can present all kinds of facts and figures and data, um, but unless your reader is an expert in that area, it's really, really hard to contextualize that. Uh, you know, there's a number, and I don't know what it is, but there's a number beyond which they said the human imagination can't really contextualize or abstract beyond a certain number. So whether it's you're talking about, uh, you know, the number of children who are in public school or the number of lives lost to a pandemic, does the human brain think of 30,000 differently than it thinks of 300,000 differently than it thinks of 3 million? Um, you know, not all that much. It's really hard. Yeah, it's once all you get just to that a lot. Yeah. When you have those individuals who have those compelling tales to tell, that's what will stick with some people for years or, or for longer. Uh, In fact, when our media team is training new physicians on how to work with us to try and get earned media out there, um, one of the things that's most important and sometimes most difficult for us to impart to them is it may or may not be a great media story when you've done some kind of medical breakthrough. It's definitely a great media story when you've had a patient who on your way home that night, you call your aunt because she's going to be so amazed to hear this story. So sometimes that happens where the actual clinical work is pretty routine, right? Mm. Something amazing was happening in that patient's life at that time. Or sometimes it is the first time this sort of thing's ever been done. Um, But we really will almost never do a media pitch about some kind of clinical advance or procedure unless there's a patient story to hang that on because that's what people are going to remember. Um, So do I think of myself as data-driven or as creative-driven? I don't think I think of myself as driven by either of those so much as I think of myself as driven by stories. Um, And I have learned over time the ways in which you need to have the data to measure the impact of what you're doing and to, to prioritize the decisions you're going to make. And I've learned that I need to surround myself with those great creative people because I am not naturally gifted as a creative. Um, but I do think I have a, a sense for a good tale. And mm. I do think I'm able to avoid falling into the trap of doing things the way everyone else does them or doing things the way that they've always been done. Um, in fact, I'll tell you one more short story. When the first year we started, Uh, We wanted to do a reception for some donors to our 501c3 foundation uh, to unveil a new art exhibit in the hospital. Uh, And I said, you know, it doesn't have to be anything fancy. We'll do it on a Tuesday night. 
We'll get some past hors d'oeuvres. We'll do beer and wine, nothing more. And some of the people who've been there a long time said, you can't serve alcohol. I said, why not? They said, you're not allowed to serve alcohol in a hospital. I said, I had no idea. Can you show me the, the regulation or the law where they say that? <laughs> well, a day later, I get an email that says, oh, no, no, no. It's, it's not because we're a hospital. You're allowed to do it in hospitals. It's because we're a county-owned building. You're not allowed to have alcohol in a county-owned building. Like, well, I spent the last three years working in County Hall and there used to be a bar in the lobby. So that's great, too. You've got one more chance. Do you have anything else for me? Well, it's not an actual rule. It's that the mayor doesn't want it done in county buildings. So, okay, well, I worked in the mayor's office for the last three years. So hold on. I took out my phone. I called one of the deputy mayors (laughs) and I said, ma'am, does the mayor have any problem if we have a reception with beer and wine? And she said, I'm quite certain the mayor does not care at all about what you do for your happy hour receptions. So I said, that's right. Three, you're out. We're going to go ahead and do it. Uh, And, you know, we don't do it often, but definitely from time to time, that's been another tool in our toolbox. And you don't, I think, have to be confrontational with people. You don't have to be a jerk about it, but you can definitely ask to see the receipts. Well, and, and, and pushing the envelope. And I mean, you talk a lot about and you give a lot of credit to everyone around you, but I think that your ability, um, you know, to, to give them air cover and to give them that permission and to facilitate and to bring it all together, I think is, is, is a big differentiator. And in my experience, the people who ought to take a lot of credit, Matthew, frequently don't. So I'm sure we can read into um, some of this for you as well. Um, well, that's listen, nice of you to say, but I really do think that's worth peeling away a little bit more, right? Because what I'm doing is not rocket science, right? I don't see my job as, you know, I don't hire writers because I'm too lazy to do the writing myself. I hire writers because they can write better than I can. I don't hire designers because I'm too lazy to design myself. They have a skill that I don't have, right? I honestly see my job as the easiest one, which is find the great and talented people build them up and empower them, get as much resource as I can for them, make sure that they have what they need to think these things through all the way, and then just clean up any mess behind them, right? That is not a complicated thing at all. You know, I'm kind of shocked that there aren't more people doing it. Well, listen, it's, uh, I think based on many conversations, it is not as easy as, uh, as, as it, might, it might sound as you say that, but I think bringing that all together and, and particularly unifying your team and your community um, through, you know, the experience that we're going through, I mean, you know, thank you for, for doing that incredible work. I'm sure many people feel the same way. Um, and thank you for, for being here. I mean, this was just an incredible interview. I, I feel like I heard stories I haven't heard before and I, I now want to go and watch that. Uh, that documentary so that I can have some sort of emotional catharsis, which uh, which is always great for the end of the week. But thank you so much for being here as it our guest. very, very much incredible. my pleasure. Um, I always enjoy having conversations like this, as I'm sure you can tell. I love the sound of my own voice. So it's nice to have you and the audience here. But honestly, I could be sitting here in an empty room doing it to myself and enjoy it almost as much. Well, then we're lucky that we were able to tap in and and capture this for, for our viewers and our listeners. Thank you again, Matthew, so much. I look forward to talking to you again. Thanks so much, Tanya. Be safe. Take care. Bye.